Welcome, everybody, to this uh, latest episode of Bell's Brief Chats. Uh, Bell's is an, an initiative uh, that is strengthening connections with British-educated life scientists who have risen to positions of power and influence in the health and life sciences around the world. Our podcasts have featured some of that talent, generously sharing their journeys and perspectives. But why is this connectedness so important in today's world? I can think of no one better to address this subject than Professor Will Harvey of Bristol University, soon after distant climbs, who has focused much of his career to date on the subjects of migration and reputation, culminating in his recent book, Reputations at Stake. Uh, Will, before we discuss your book, let's discuss how our connection actually came to pass. Thanks so much for having me, Nigel. Yes, I remember I was doing my PhD at the University of Cambridge, and I was looking as part of that PhD at British talent in uh, the pharmaceutical and biotech sector around Cambridge, Massachusetts and, and Boston. And in one of my early interviews, I remember speaking to someone saying, you must speak to this guy, Nigel Gaiman. He is the person that you must speak to. And, and uh, I got the connection. and got in contact with you and I, and I remember being excited about our interview but what was so funny that transpired from that was that it ended up really being you interviewing me rather than me interviewing you because you were sort of sussing out like is this guy the sort of person that I can use this Bell's network to connect with others for, for mutual benefit and every PhD has a, a key inflection point and I would say that was one of the key moments during my field work where you open the floodgates to a whole set of people that I don't think would have been possible and for that I'm very grateful and I think it's a strong endorsement of the Bells Network. Thank you. Well I mean we, we're very much about I mean the words that come to mind in terms of the work we do is about creating ripples, um, creating sparks, about nud a nudging process. Um, and it's about how you change the course of progress. And one of the things that we have has been a challenge for us is actually how few people actually think about this and the impact it has on reputations, the impact it has in terms of actually those ripples creating major investments, for instance, from a life science company into the UK. Um, in your work, has this come as this phenomenon of sort of a lack of clear understanding of the importance of connectedness? Um, does it come from just people so stuck in their their, their regular days uh, work? that they just don't think about the big picture? Yes, I think so. And even before I, I did my PhD, I remember being really influenced by the work of Annalise Saxinian and the work that she did there on Chinese and Indian engineers in Silicon Valley. And certainly my, my PhD back in, in uh, 2008 found a very similar phenomenon with British uh, and Indian scientists in the life sciences sector but if anything Nigel I think it's accelerated faster I mean you think about some of the hot topics like data analytics artificial intelligence supercomputers I mean all these areas require sort of very high skill training across sort of world-leading universities but they also require these kinds of individuals 
to have professional training in other parts of the world to get new ideas, new perspectives. And so one thing I think that ironically, even though Britain has so much talent that gets sent all over the world, and you and I have been part of that ourselves in our own careers, um, we're not particularly good, in my opinion, at leveraging that talent. And I think that is an enormous opportunity. And, you know, I think Bells is genuinely a really important conduit through which we can tap into those networks, but also more than networks. It's understanding new innovation, new ways that people are doing things, new opportunities. And that doesn't require people to move to the other side of the world. It requires understanding what's going on and seeing if those kinds of opportunities across geographic boundaries can create new business opportunities. Mm -hmm. Let's just step back and let us go back to the to the beginning of life for Will Harvey. You you, you were at school at Haileybury and and you you made this decision to to go and study geography. Um, where does that come from? Um, and has it been a surprise to you in the direction you've taken? Yeah, so I think the UK higher education system, particularly when you compare to other parts of the world, we are expected to narrow quite quickly. And um, one of the appeals to me when I was doing my A-levels in the UK was to do a subject which sort of tapped into humanities, social sciences, environmental sciences, physical sciences. And, th and that's what I loved about geography. You could be doing stuff on climate, to volcanology, to cities, to people. And so I think, you know, cutting across sort of qualitative types of methods, quantitative methods, looking at different parts of the world, that really attracted me, having that breadth uh, of um, knowledge. And I noticed that when I did an exchange year, because I did my undergraduate degree in geography at Durham, and in my second year, I went on exchange to the University of California, Berkeley, which was an incredibly uh, powerful influence on me, both socially and, and intellectually. I, I noticed there that, you know, in your lower division courses in the US, you people would just you do whatever you want you might do something in business you might do something in political science or sociology or, or whatever is sort of you know of of interest and then you know as you go into your kind of upper division types of courses years three and four you start to specialize so i think I in think a way it, that that would have suited me quite well doing that myself so geography was sort of almost a perfect antidote to that if you like so, Will, um, your decision, so you end up at Haleybury School and then clearly gravitated towards geography um, to go to university at, um, and study that. What drove that um, and really interested you to take this journey, which obviously then went into all sorts of other areas that you probably couldn't have foreseen? Yeah, I think the UK higher education system asks us to narrow quite quickly. And I think one of the advantages of a field like geography is it cuts across many areas from environmental sciences, physical sciences, sort of uh, humanities, social sciences. You could be doing qualitative research. You can be doing quantitative research. You could do statistics. So I love the breadth. And of course, the geographic reach of what you're studying is very attractive. And, and when I um, did my undergraduate degree at Durham in my second year, I went on an exchange at the University of California, Berkeley, which was a tremendously 
impressionable period of my life, um, both socially and in terms of my academics. And one thing I noticed there is that in the first couple of years, when you study in the US, you tend to sort of choose all kinds of courses that you're interested in. And it could be, you know, political science, it could be sociology, you know, it could it could be environmental sciences. And then in your latter two years, you tend to sort of specialize and declare your major. And I think in, in many ways that system would have suited me very well. But the antidote to that, I suppose, in the UK system was to choose a degree that's quite broad and then you can sort of pick and choose as you go through the degree. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of where I was coming from with doing geography. And when you so stepping into when you started interviewing some of these expatriates uh, abroad, um, what was the, the the big take home? Was it you know they wanted to return home? They never were going to return home. Uh, was there a loyalty to the UK? Um, what was was the overriding impressions you got from those conversations? Yeah, I would say two things. So one is, I think, an interesting one around well, what what was the sort of trigger for people to go in the first place? And what I found so fascinating there is, you know, we, we all know about sort of doing a BA, a Bachelor's of Arts or, or an MBA, a Master of Business Administration. But quite a few of these scientists talked about getting their BTA. And I was like, what's a BTA? And, and, and the acronym was Bean to America. And I thought that was really interesting because of course it's not a formal qualification but it is a really valuable signal that in order to go places in their career and this is obviously in life sciences they recognize that they either needed to study and or study and get professional experience at the creme de la creme um, of the top sort of firms uh, in um, the US so I think that was definitely a very strong trigger for why people moved in the first place I would say um, in terms of the question of sort of contacts back with the UK, I would say lots and lots of people have a lot of nostalgia, goodwill, wanting the very, very best for the UK. If I'm being honest, I think there's a bit of disillusionment amongst a lot of people that I spoke to in terms of, well, it's kind of annoying that I'm now a chief executive and when I could have had some support or networking backing when I was moving to the US, that wasn't there. But now because suddenly I'm a chief exec of a big farmer, suddenly the government in the UK wants to sort of do stuff with me. So I think that asymmetrical kind of relationship didn't fit very well. And so the lesson I think for all of us is that, you know, you need to value people and support people on the way up because when they do get to the top, that goodwill will serve you extremely well. Whereas if you only instrumentally connect and benefit with people when they're in positions of power, then, you know, you may not have that same level of goodwill. So I think, so that's, I think something that, that, that we as a, as a country need to think about a bit more And this kind of uh, network, I think is a tremendous way of sort of breaking down those career silos to support those early careers, but also, you know, those, that group of very senior people as well to give them the networks and resources and context to help them to thrive as well. Because we, we, I mean, this all sort of this this attitude maybe is entrenched. It starts with the the whole brain drain Royal Society yeah. report and yeah. uh, everyone going overseas. But one thing that has struck me always is 
whether it comes from an island mentality or it's something more deep rooted, is this um, prevailing attitude. It's in a generalization, I know, prevailing attitude of, well, you, you, the great unwashed, have actually gone away, you've gone abroad and you've turned your back on us and that's it. <laughs> and you're sort of cut off forevermore, which when you look at the enlightened uh, use of diaspora by other countries, and we, we focus in on the, the three eyes, Israel, Ireland, and India, um, seems much more enlightened in the way they approach this. And the UK is missing a huge trick by not actually working out how to communicate and stay in touch with these influences. I fully agree. And I believe strongly that in order to innovate, you need to have people and structures which sort of present new ways of looking at a problem or a, a phenomenon. And one way of doing that, uh, which I think there's been so much research in the skilled migration literature is, you know, you bring someone who has either studied in a different place has worked in a different environment, you bring them into the mix. So long as you manage the kind of the relational tensions that sometimes come with people from different cultural backgrounds coming together, if you can manage that, then the innovation that comes from new ideas, new structures, new systems, new ways of working is just absolutely phenomenal. And so I think from a from a business perspective, from a government perspective, there is so much benefit from bringing those weak ties into the mix. And then at an individual level, and I'm sure you would speak to this as well. I mean, what certainly when I reflect on, you know, having been a you know, student in South Africa, studying in the US, working in, in, in uh, Canada, in Australia, each one of those experiences has its own different either professional or personal challenges but in order to sort of circumvent those kinds of challenges you have to be quite creative in your mindset and in the way you work and that creates all kinds of i think intellectual benefits that you can then apply in your work context so i think in a number of different ways by actually engaging with people who are working in different environments, it, it actually makes enormous business sense. And it probably would help to negate another problem that the UK has, which is its sort of ambivalent relationship with migrants who come from other parts of Europe and the world in the UK. So, so I think there is a, a number of different benefits from doing that, but it does take a leap of faith. Yeah. And the, uh, we've, I've recently noticed um, a real fixation on um, we, we need that talent to return, you know, particularly, say, in the life sciences where you need the management experience, uh, the connections to yeah. the funding uh, mechanisms that obviously the United States has. Um, but the value seems to be, it seems to be perceived the value is only in if they return. We absolutely yes. think that is completely not true. Um, it's about these spheres of influence that these people have, uh, which can benefit and should benefit the UK, uh, which has a tremendous story to tell, but sometimes gets down on itself in the way it presents itself or um, gets into endless hype, uh, current 
free election of some people in government to to talk about you know we're going to be the next silicon valley and sort of it makes you roll your eyes and go come on guys let's be real here we're different we've got so many strengths um in our in what we have in the uk connected health system uh, great dialogue across the piece in terms of academia government and industry which you do not get to the same degree in other countries which is a another competitive benefit um, we tend to focus on the weaknesses of our system maybe it's funding and maybe it's um, the lack of that sort of capital and maybe not having markets and uh, stock markets that uh, that set up for our industry as distinct from nasdaq um, it's always about sort of what's wrong instead of what's right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I think two really interesting points you've made there. What, one, I think, is this conflation between what I would term return migration and brain circulation. So return migration is when people actually physically relocate, in this case, back to the UK, compared to brain circulation, which is where people may be moving backwards and forwards, let's say, between the US and, and the UK. But as you rightly say, you don't need to return and be a resident in the UK to give tremendous value to the industry. I'm sure you and I could list a, a very large number of people mm -hmm. who come under that latter category. So I think that's that's absolutely key just to foster brain circulation, but not necessarily return migration. And then I think, you know, the second point that, that you make is, is a really interesting one around the claims we make about the UK versus actually supporting that through tangible initiatives. And I think one of the um, risks of an era of lots of news, mass media, social media platforms is that governments want to sort of constantly make these sort of sexy sound bites. But the danger of that is it becomes very superficial often when people look at the detail and go, well, actually, what does the next Silicon Valley really mean? I mean, there's been studies on that where there's been hundreds and hundreds of countries that have claimed to be this Silicon Valley or that Silicon Valley. And the reality is it's just a, a, a soundbite that gets some news, but that's not going to get you any meaningful traction in the long term. Better to not worry so much about the sound bites and work out, well, what is your strategic kind of direction and investment in a meaningful way? And if some positive sound bites come from that, that's great. But let's focus on the tangible rather than the superficial. Yeah. So you went to Cambridge and then you really started to focus in on migration as a topic to begin with. Um, and and, and how, how did this, this shift to to a to, to a tangent of looking at uh, reputation, um, how did you link the two? What sort of drove you towards this reputation? And I uh, I see how migration and uh, reputation uh, are so linked. Yeah. So when I so I did a postdoc after I finished at Cambridge, um, which was funded by the Canadian government and the Commonwealth Trust at University of British Columbia in uh, Vancouver. And then I moved to the side business school at Oxford, where I started working on reputation. And, and what became very apparent to me quickly was that the real link between why people move and reputation. And there are, and in particular, so let's say you or I are 
thinking about you know a new opportunity we might look at different levels of reputation we might go okay what about the city like let's look at the reputation of the city we might look at like hong kong versus melbourne versus vancouver versus miami or wherever but then we might look ask ourselves what's the reputation in the industry that we work in so for me you know it would be you know the universities and in particular a business school you know for you it would be more the life sciences but then we might get into the granular detail of okay well what about the, the, the specific team or the leader the chief executive of a, a particular company and so i guess what became very apparent is that when people are making migration decisions, they're often looking at different layers of reputation. It might be the country, it might be the city, it could be the industry, it could even be the company, um, it could even be the leader. And what became very apparent through this research was that there are sort of these multiple layers of reputation that are informing people's choices about where to move to. So, yeah, I mean, someone might love a city and go, well, I'd love to live in that city. And they may try and sort of make it work so they can find an opportunity there. But if other forms of reputation don't line up, it's probably not going to work out for them. Mm -hmm. And and you start, uh, let's just go to your book now. So, I mean, yep. is this something in the back of your mind to write this book? Um, or, or was it something you had a eureka moment, you know, I'm, I need to set some thoughts down here on this subject matter? Yeah, and just for the benefits of the, the, the listeners and the viewers, this is the book, Reputations at Stake, which is mm -hmm. published by Oxford University Press. Um, to, yeah, to answer your um, question, Nigel, I think it was like a, a bricolage over the last 15 to 20 years where various different projects I've been working on have sort of intersected with the issue of reputation. Stemming from, uh, as we talked about earlier, some of my PhD work, trying to understand, well, why do people move to places? Why do people invest in places where reputation considerations come into play? To looking very much at the sort of the, the, the business level and understanding, well, how do businesses build a reputation? How do they manage it? Um, and then it's just become very apparent to me that equally at sort of the individual level of you or I, our own reputations are crucial at every stage of our careers, whether you're a recent graduate looking to, to get employment in your in, in your first organization to maybe, you know, some of our listeners here who are looking to make that leap into the C-suite or to become a chief executive like that, how you're perceived by different stakeholders at every facet of your life, and not just in work, but also in home life and in sort of social environments, has a big impact on how others perceive you and how you fit within the entity that you're operating within. And then it doesn't take long just to look at news stories, read the newspapers, to see social media platforms, to realize, oh my goodness, we've got reputation everywhere from how people perceive vaccines to US or British uh, elections to people's positions on climate change and biodiversity depletion. I mean, it could be about a person, it could be about a government, it could be about a sort of an existential threat to the world. All of these things in a way have some kind of resonance to reputation, which is perceived as how do people make sense of and make judgments about certain things and that in essence is sort of 
where everything I've tried to sort of bring together in the book, which is both kind of evidence-based around research, but also um, very much draws upon lots of examples that, that we're witnessing uh, in the news, including today, you know, discussions about Prince Harry and the royal family. That's just another uh, uh, example, and, and, and I could miss many of those. Yeah. <clears throat> so, I mean, we, we live in a world where there's disinformation is in, in, in making things so hard. Yeah. Yeah, what is really real? And, you know, Prince, Prince Harry is, is one of the recipients of that. You know, the people seem to get very polarised yeah. by... By information that is sketchy at best um, about them, and you wonder at the fairness of it all. But I'm, I'm struck, you know, when I look at the contents of, of your book and so on, in this first chapter on reputation matters, you break it down of, of, of how reputation forms at so many levels, and you start individual level, team level, organization level, regional level, country level phenomena level yeah. um, and environment social movements health technology all those layers surely make it quite a complicated world to navigate yeah. so does it sort of sh shriek the need for there to be some sort of central uh, ethos that you have to um, build for yourself and stay true to yeah, absolutely. And we've got another threat that I think is really interesting, a threat and an opportunity, which we haven't mentioned, which is generative artificial intelligence. And of yes. course, we've seen that with ChatGBT, Bard, yesterday, obviously, Apple have just released their, this, this new kind of product, which is going to draw upon a, a lot of these things. And But one of the points that I think you made that is extremely important is that we have a challenge now in society where we have a proliferation of information and that becomes very difficult for people to decipher the truth from fiction and i think one of the most important things i was reading some of your past newsletters nigel i think one of the most important things about those newsletters is you're providing factual high quality analytic insight into what's going on, as opposed to someone just doing a quick search online, you get all kinds of information that is um, presented in spurious ways. And so I don't think it's necessarily something that we have to be obsessed by or unduly worry about, but I do think, and this is one of the take homes from the book, all of us do need to be more proactive in terms of managing reputation, but importantly, without over-engineering it, because, for instance, I could give some examples of people that I would say have probably over-engineered their reputation. So who comes to mind at the moment would be someone like Elizabeth Holmes with Theranos mm -hmm. or uh, Sam Bankman-Fried with FTX, uh, the cryptocurrency exchange. Both of them had enormous kind of media coverage and hype around, wow, these are just these incredible sort of products. And I think the problem with that is that when you get too much obsession by a company or a leader, it increases the risk profile that they have to sort of overmanage things to the point where some of their decision making becomes ethically dubious. So one of the take homes from the book is, look, we've got all this information out there. 
you've got to manage your reputation because if you don't take control of the narrative someone else will but and this is a really important but do not become overly obsessed by it or try to over engineer something that you're not because otherwise you're going to end up in worst case scenario in prison and maybe slightly better case scenario you've just been unethical either way you don't want to go down that route so do you think that the uk um system you know whether it's government or whatever underestimates the power or the need for influences around the world to say good things about the uk uh, point to its strengths one of the things that we're laser focused on with our news flow through our bells brief clips is to give them a picture as broadly as we can in the confines of not overloading them with information about success stories, things happening in the UK, right across, whether it's government regulators, companies big and small, academic in research institutions, whatever. Um, not in a sort of rah-rah way, but actually just to point out the sheer scope of activity and therefore you cannot afford it's not about you know calling all brits please come home or calling all brits please say nice things about it it's actually giving them reasons i couldn't be doing bells if i didn't believe actually that the uk had so much to offer and that strategically you cannot afford not to be taking credence of what's going on in the uk or involving yourself in the UK. It is one of the great venues for the life sciences and for other industries. And, and Bell's, I think, is repeatable in other industries that benefit the UK. But the seem, uh, I wonder why we have this problem of the, you know, getting support for Bell's because it, maybe it's not impacting individuals or governments think they're already doing it. It's, uh, it's been a, a curious anomaly that I've uh, struggled with. Yeah, so a, a couple of things, Nigel. I mean, one is since living and working in many different countries, I have always been surprised how many British-born people are working in incredible kinds of organisations, doing amazing things that almost certainly are totally off the radar of many people in the UK, including the mm -hmm. UK government. I mean, where mm -hmm. I'm moving to Melbourne Business School, which is the best business school in the Asia Pacific, already there are several members of the senior management team that are British born. And that's just one, you know, very good business school. And you and I could spend a long time now listing off all kinds of people, not only in life sciences, but beyond. So I, I, strongly believe, not because I'm British, just purely because I've observed it professionally and socially in different worlds, different parts of the world and in different sectors, that the that this talent exists everywhere and it's not being leveraged in a in a meaningful way. So so I completely support what you're doing. I think the opportunity in relation to where we're at technologically is really presents itself for having uh, influencers who are, I would call them responsible influencers. So if you think, if we just step back a bit and think structurally around what's going on, we've got a lot of social media platforms which reach out to billions of people, frankly, 
and people that just want sort of sound bites, little video clips, everything. And that's very, very confusing. And then we've got generative artificial intelligence, which is drawing upon stuff that's already in the public domain um, online that is then just making very, very quick sort of automatic kind of uh, choices and analytic decisions around questions that people are asking. Now, the combination of those two things creates a high potential for lots of misleading information. So it could be, as you say, disinformation, which is where either algorithms have been designed to deliberately undermine the truth, or it could be what's known as misinformation, which is kind of inadvertently it's created um, false information. But in either context, Nigel, this is really important to have high quality thought leaders or brokers of knowledge or, or influencers, whatever terminology you want to use, who can really cut through a lot of that noise and basically mm. say, look, these are some of the key things that are going on. These are the sources where you might want to go to, because ultimately we don't have a problem in society with the volume of information. Uh, we've got enough. In fact, you could say we do have a problem because we have too much. Mm -hmm. For me, the biggest challenge that we've got is quality information and getting quality information to people. And that's where I think the role that you're doing is an extremely valuable one, because what you're doing is you've got your network and you've got the value of those networks. But the insight that comes from that network generates a quality set of information not just for the network, but much more broadly. And if you can expand that and leverage that at scale, then the opportunity is is huge. And it's a responsible opportunity that adds value to, to business, society and governments. One of your latter chapters in the book um, is under the title of Doing Well by Doing Good. Yeah. Um, I think that's a wonderful euphemism for what we're trying to do with bells. It's what drives me personally um, in, in terms of the impact it can have. It's crystal clear to me. A lot of people, it is not crystal clear from them. But maybe that's because they're not delving into it. Um, just explain when you say doing well by doing good, because this is seems to me to be something that is gaining hold. Is that mirrored by your findings uh, that people are starting to think about those things a lot more? De definitely. And also lots of people are doing it superficially as well, which yes. is another problem. So like if, if we were to just take one aspect around sort of responsibility towards the environment, I mean, I would say there is loads of examples of where organizations are doing really exciting things you know let's take like the b core movement or the circular economy movement i think it's some fascinating and really inspiring things that people are doing big organizations are doing as well as small organizations you know which collectively is is making a positive impact and there are lots of organizations across all sectors that are jumping on the bandwagon and using it predominantly as a way to kind of give sort of superficial sound bites. So saying, look, look at this great thing we're doing here, which may be great, but actually it's facading other stuff that uh, is not so great. So definitely I think there is a recognition that 
doing good is really important and that could be around the environment it could be around sort of social issues how you treat your workforce it could be about thinking more broadly than just sort of a narrow set of stakeholders let's say if you're publicly listed just your shareholders to thinking about your wider responsibility to a, a broader set of stakeholders so i i definitely think momentum is starting to build but we need to get away from the rhetoric to actually meaningful action. And I think one way of doing that is thinking, of course, I understand if you're a publicly listed organization, you've, you, there is a bottom line and you know, you've, you've got to provide a compelling return on investment, but I don't think it needs to be a zero sum game. I think you can do have a really meaningful, responsible purpose as a business be focused on the long term and provide prosperity for a variety of stakeholders, including your shareholders. So there's some really interesting initiatives going on. The Enacting Purpose Initiative, um, the World Economic Forum is, is looking at this under the rubric of stakeholder capitalism. So I think momentum is shifting quite rapidly. There'll be a few cowboys that will continue to be out there. There'll be plenty of skeptics that say, oh, this is just woke stuff, green stuff, except that there'll be that kind of noise because this polarization in society exists. But the take that I would say is, I don't think it's necessary to kind of put responsibility at odds with profitability and prosperity. You can have those things acting in tandem, but most importantly, your purpose as a business or your purpose as a leader should start by being responsible. Responsibility is at its core and prosperity, financial returns, other things will, should follow from that. But if you put financial return at the top, you get all kinds of externalities that will be negative because you just focus on short term financial returns at all costs and then everything else is just, you know, collateral. So I think you have to make sure that the responsibility is first and then work out how can profitability and other benefits stem from that. And is a generational shift in this attitude possible from the younger generation wanting something different? Definitely. And, and you see it with some highly influential people like Greta Thunberg, obviously, in the environmental movement, but there are others as well. Um, so I think there will be more pressure on uh, the older generations to shift quicker. And we're seeing those tensions sort of sparking a bit, for instance, to do with decarbonization. You know, some people want, you know, a complete sort of cut off from, you know, utilization of fossil fuels, but obviously operationally, that's not really practical because you, you need to, you can pivot fast, but you, you need a transition. So I think those tensions are sort of coming through, but it will be kind of, um, the next generation, the young, who will use technology and in innovative ways to help kind of catalyze change. But of course, many of our senior leaders tend to, you know, to be older and have more experience. And so they're going to have to work really well with those groups, but not clash. Um, but I think it needs to come both from those senior leaders as well as sort of the next generations who really, you know, I, I think are, are expecting very different things from the types of organizations of the past. Conscious of our time dwindling, so just a couple of areas I just want to touch on briefly. One is uh, one of your latter chapters is, is talks about reputation damage and how do you come back from that? 
Um, I'm just wondering the optics on the UK, you know, being specific, uh, are not great at the moment for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, are we nationally letting the media run uh, the how we are perceived on the global stage? And do we need to make more efforts, whether it's utilizing things like bells to shift perspectives to provide an alternative view of, of the UK rather than doom and gloom, um, which tends to sell newspapers and media outlets. Um, do we need this constant counterpoint to balance things in a world that's just full of information um, without it being jingoistic? Yeah, great question. And you're spot on. Unfortunately, negative news sells much better than yes. positive news so that's always a challenge and that's that's not a new phenomenon it's just the scale of it has increased but that that is a, a challenge that governments and and chief executives of organizations have to have to grapple with um i, I think the uk has obviously faced a bit of an identity crisis the combination of how it's having to sort of navigate brexit alongside obviously last year the sort of fiasco with various prime ministers coming and going alongside probably also um, the passing of uh, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II as well. That there's sort of a, those combinations, I think, has created a bit of an identity crisis around, you know, the UK and, and, and what it means to be the UK. And but I think the antidote, as you rightly say, is you can't just constantly sort of respond to sort of negative news stories here, there and everywhere. You've got to have um, some kind of proactive approach and i think it's got to be bold and it's got to be strategic of course it, there's a risk with that that um it comes across as sort of vacuous but i i do feel that the opportunity for the current government and whoever um takes over in, in the next election will be to have a really bold and positive kind of set of statements ambitions around the UK, both in terms of how we see ourselves as a country, but also as a really clear message to other parts of the world, businesses, governments elsewhere in the world, say, look, actually, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. We do an amazing amount of incredible stuff from sport to engineering to science to academic studies. You and I could reel off a massive list of things that the UK is absolutely world leading. And I'm not saying that, as you say, as a jingoistic, but it's a fact. We, we are uh, an incredible country in terms of the breadth and depth of so many things. But you wouldn't be led to believe that in terms of the narrative and the news. So we need to get back on the front foot and say, look, actually, this is what we do. We're open for business. We're here to welcome people in as visitors you know, or as talent, and we want to work together to make the UK a really prosperous and thriving place and to help other parts of the world do the same. Not in a neo-colonialist kind of way, but in a new kind of way that we're currently operating. I think that's that's the kind of the, the big challenge. And I think we've got the ammunition to support that. But as you say, at the moment, unfortunately, it's very much, to use a cricket analogy, sort of back foot kind of defence at the moment. Mm-hmm. And briefly, you alluded to going on to Pastures New a bit later this year. Uh, just tell us very quickly uh, a little bit about um, Melbourne and 
what attracted you to move across the, to the other side of the world. Um, it sounds very exciting. Tell us more. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm really excited. So I'm going to be taking up uh, the inaugural director role of a centre called the Social Purpose Centre at Melbourne Business School, which is at the University of Melbourne. And the whole point of that centre is to help organisations of all structures, whether it's government, whether it's not for profit, whether it's private, whether it's publicly listed, to help them think about focusing on issues of purpose. And goes back to that comment I was saying before, Nigel, about how can you have a compelling purpose that is meaningful for your members and can promote sort of prosperity and, and sort of financial soundness as well. So I'm really excited about this because I think it is just so timely at the moment for reasons that we discussed that around the doing well um, by doing good. It clearly links to, to my um, sort of reputation research as well and 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 obviously you and i have uh, traveled a lot and um i'm really excited to be returning to australia not to sydney this time but obviously um to melbourne and we'll work very hard in light of our discussions around brain circulation to be kind of working with the uk as well it's I, i'm not sort of a one pound poms sort of moving to australia indefinitely i very much see it as you know, an adventure, a professional opportunity, and any ways that I can support both Australia, the UK, and other parts of the world, you know, I'm, I'm very keen to do that. Well, Professor Will Harvey, that's been fantastic. I suspect, with your permission, that we may well explore a programme two for a further conversation very soon. Uh, but th thanks very much for your time today. Pleasure. I'm very happy to do that. Thanks, Nigel.